Hey, Sven. Hey, Leo. So glad to have you on to another episode of Empower Apps. My name is Leo Dion. Today, we're joined by Sven Schmidt, co-creator, co-maintainer of the Swift Package Index, creator of Arena, a Swift Package Playground generator. How did I do with that intro? Pretty good? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. What did I miss? Well, I think those are the things that that are probably best known. Um, I've got another app as well, Hummingbird, um, that's not on the App Store, and I've got an Xcode extension which is on the Mac App Store. But but yeah, that's that pretty much sums it up. Ooh, Xcode extension. We should chat about that later. I didn't know that because <laughs> that's something I'm interested in. But it always it always seems like a real challenge to get those working and get them get them out. It, totally yes. I just today I had to help Dave to get it up and running again because Xcode, especially if you have multiple versions of Xcode running, it just keeps forgetting about the extensions all the time. So today I wanted to talk about the Swift Package Index. Uh, we had Tim on a few weeks ago just talking about the state of server side Swift in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one. So I wanted to, to kind of get an idea of like a real world scenario of maintaining. A site like this, as well as kind of getting into the nitty gritty of Swift packages and how those work. So I'll first I'll let you start about the story regarding Swift package index, how that started with you and Dave, and uh, what what you found has helped it work, and what are some challenges you've run into maintaining that site. So yeah, the the way that started was um, last spring, and uh, I think there's a good summary of that on John Sandel's podcast, actually, um, who was kind enough to invite us just after I launched, where I told a bit of the, the backstory of it. I contacted Dave in spring with an idea to integrate um, Arena with a with his Swift package index at the at the time it was called um, SwiftPM dot uh, co. And my idea was to tie Arena into his site such that people could click a button and explore a package in a Swift playground. Um, you know, just a, a one-click thing to get a third-party dependency embedded in a playground. And I pitched that idea to him. And um, <laughs> what what turned out then, we, we ended up rewriting his um, uh, SwiftPM.co uh, in Vapor. Um, that's something he was sort of um, thinking about doing um, at the time, and I had free time to look into it, and that's that's how this project really started. Um, and as I joked at John Sundell's podcast, <laughs> the thing we we managed was launch the site, but not embed the button. So that's that's certainly still something on our to do list. <laughs> I highly recommend checking that episode out from earlier this summer. Really great summary of Swift Package Index. A lot of great. Insight from Dave, too. Uh, I really love that episode. Um, John did a good job. So I'll put that in the show notes for you to get some more background on the Swift Package Index and that story. What have you found are some like pet peeves that you've had with trying to, because you've done a lot with like showing the different support that these packages have as far as like what OSs they support and what versions of Swift they support as well. What are some pet peeves you have with like maintaining the site and allowing other people to add their Swift packages or mistakes that people make, I guess. I'm not sure I'd go so far as mistakes people make. It's just that when you build 3,600 packages or, or, you know, try and build them across, um, we've got 32 uh, language and platform combinations that we build for you run invariably into issues um, that aren't anyone's fault, re- 
fault really. It's just, you know, the number of combinations that you're looking at that, that surface things that go wrong. And apart from trying to figure out in the first place how you can build across these 32 combinations with a, a simple build script, which is actually a script, um, a Swift package itself that does the building. That, that took quite some time to figure out and we had some help along the way to get us there. But once we had that figured out, there were still some things that we just couldn't solve on our own. One of those is, for instance, on watchOS. So what what um, happens when you try to build something with with Xcode, uh, a Swift package with Xcode? It creates it auto creates a scheme, and when I say Xcode, I mean Xcode build from the command line. Mm-hmm. It auto creates a scheme, and normally that works fine. But in the case of um, watchOS targets, if there are tests, these auto, this auto-created scheme will also try and build the tests, but XC test uh, isn't available on watchOS. Right. So those all failed when we first did this. Now, there might have been ways for us to try and guess the correct scheme by looking at what they're named and find um, schemes that aren't, that are in the project files. But that is sort of, you know, you don't want to introduce a lot of heuristics if you're doing something that finicky to begin with. So what we chose to do instead is just add a, um, a little manifest file, an SPI manifest file, a YAML file where um, package authors can define what scheme we should pick up and build for on, on certain targets, uh, on certain platforms. And that can be, or is typically used for watchOS, but you know that can be used for any platform and Swift version combination really. Yeah, I remember talking about that in my in a Spain talk about the the example of the point free, one of their packages. They use that to specify that you can test out Watch OS. And I've yeah, the whole u- testing on Watch OS thing is is a strange oversight. I'm not sure why Apple doesn't support that yet, but yeah, that's that's an interesting way to get around that. Yeah, that certainly helped us um, and helped the the package authors to get that box to green. It's it's really interesting how how um, authors have picked this up and are trying uh, to um, to make the builds work. I mean, if their if their package supports the platform, and in in some cases, I mean, I had a couple of packages um, that really seeing that matrix incentivized me to go in and see well, can I get this to green? Can I get this to show as supported? And often it's it's not that much work to actually get it to to pass, and it's nice to have that that whole you know that whole matrix green um, all the Swift versions and, and platforms um, potentially. I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I'm a uh, Shields.io addict. You've probably seen a few of my <laughs> my GitHub readmes. So yeah, it's like oh, I gotta get them all green. I gotta get a plus <laughs> on my on my code quality. So yeah, I, I totally understand that. Do you know that we actually support Shields IO, so we can generate Swift supported Swift versions on supported platforms, so that you can reflect in your README what we have, what we show on the site. That's awesome! I'm so happy about that. That's fantastic. I'm glad uh, now our audience knows that, because yeah, I know there's a there's a way to to implement that. So good job uh, getting that working. Hey folks, I wanted to let you know about Linode. Linode is one of my favorite cloud server tools out there as far as hosting is concerned. You may have seen my latest project, Orchard Nest, where I have built a website completely in Swift for showcasing some of the latest and greatest blog posts, podcasts, and videos in the Swift community. 
And that site is completely hosted on Linode. In fact, I can tell you that the server is in Newark, but they have servers all around the world, everywhere from Toronto to Mumbai. So you can set up anywhere or you can set up load balancing and share your site everywhere as well. But it has been a really fantastic tool in building Orchard Nest and it really does a great job showing me like various CPU usage and IP4 traffic, IP6 traffic, disk IO, etc. It's been awesome and it's been consistently running great. And I think it's a really great, you get a lot for your price, especially for developers who really want to build stuff hands-on and get the developer tools they need to start their brand new server project. So go ahead and give Linode a shot. The link to Linode is in the show notes below. Use that to let them know that you heard about Linode from this show. They've been awesome. I really enjoyed hosting Orchard Nest on Linode at orchardnest.com. It's been fantastic. They have all sorts of great tools. Get yourself a nice, simple Ubuntu server and start working on that Vapor application you want to today using Linode. Again, use the link in the show notes below to let them know you heard about Linode from us. And hopefully you can get started on your new project today. So the other thing that I've run into, we've talked, we've chatted about this uh, offline, is being able to support Docker images. I ran into a really interesting issue where apparently I needed uh, the SSL package installed for Mistkit. So you not only can do specify schemes for watchOS, but you can specify Docker images, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and you weren't the first one to require OS level dependencies in your Docker image, and. The way we build for Linux is we just use the default Swift images for the various Swift versions. And they, you know, they come with just the base level um, dependencies. And if you need anything beyond, typically when you set up your own CI, you have control over that and you can add dependencies by, you know, running apt-get install in your build steps. But obviously we, we don't allow that and we can't, you know, either foresee all the various dependencies people might need. So the way we've solved this for now is we allow you to specify a Docker image, another base image that you can use um, that we will pick up to build. Um, Now, there's one thing to bear in mind. We just don't accept any image. So um, if you want to use this, you would need to let us know um, so that we can allow list those images um, because um, obviously, you know, with Docker images, you can... You can run all sorts of things in that we would then run on top of. Uh, right. So we need a bit of an insight of what's what gets added and what gets run. So, like I said, we talked about Vapor in our previous episode with Tim. What are some packages that you use to keep the site running uh, smoothly besides just, you know, Vapor or Fluent or whatever uh, server-side plugins you might be using? What What do you use for, like, more of the maintenance of the site? Yeah, so there's really two areas where we uh, invest to keep the site running. And and obviously, you know, we want to keep that low overhead as it's just us two working on it and operating on it. And it isn't just a website, right? Because we're also running these builders all the time. So there's it's a bit more than just a web page. And that's the two areas are uh, site ops, um, like site operations and 
testing. Uh, one is after deployment fact and monitoring. The one is before deployment to, to make sure that the deployments themselves are all right. And the packages are in the testing area. It's uh, snapshot testing and that's point free, free codes, a snapshot testing package, which is just fantastic. It, it really helps us to test things broadly and highlight things that change in, in areas that are yeah, that are quite critical. Um, so for instance, where we use it is we snapshot test our HTML pages and that's both structurally. So the HTML itself and the, the rendering. So like we render PNGs of the, of the page, what it looks like both in desktop and in, in mobile views. Um, and that really helps to ensure that we aren't inadvertently, um, breaking the layout or what it looks like. Um, now it's unfortunately not perfect because it's really hard to get um, CSS to load into those snapshots. So there's a couple of areas where we're not capturing the full fidelity of it, but it really helps um, to highlight changes that are happening. How are you rendering the HTML, if you might mind me asking? So Point Free Co comes with that. Um, it has ways to bring up, I think it's using a... Um, uh, UI view under the hood where it it loads the, the um, a webkit view I mean um, where it mm. renders the the um, the page and then snapshots that out and the difficulty with getting the CSS to load is because of the security settings in lo- in loading additional resources into that page I don't I don't have the details in front of me right now but it's it's really hard to bless um, yeah I'd imagine paths to get that to get that to load properly. And is that like, are you using Leaf or Publish underneath or what are you doing to actually like render the, the HTML on the web? No, we're using an HTML DSL and that's, we're using John Sundell's Inc. framework. Sorry, and, yes. Pub- I, yeah. When I say publish, sorry, yeah. And that, I really like Inc. Uh, I've actually used that for uh, my my new site, or- Orchard Nest, uh, that uses Inc. as well. And I've, I've really, really like that. Yeah, yeah. That it works really well for us. It's it's really fast. It's been really helped with Xcode 12 and the better uh, autocomplete and you know just handling of um, large nested structures. Um, yes, because yep. you know that that used to break a lot uh, under Xcode 11. What are you doing as far as like because you mentioned speed? What are you doing to make sure that the HTML is as fast as it can be? Um, like, are you doing any sort of caching or anything like that? No, not at the moment, because in all our testing, it's been really fast. The okay. the thing that makes page loading slow is um, that we're fetching a couple of things from external resources. So um, uh, yeah, I'd imagine that we've yeah we've started adding the readmes to the package pages, and that's that is the the biggest slowdown on that page um, because we're fetching the the data of that readme and then. You know, display it on the page and render it in in Markdown, Markdown to HTML. So that's the slowdown on that page. That page before that was was super fast. The only page that was really slow was one that had two hundred library targets, and fetching that from the database was slow. But the, the HTML display itself is super fast. I um, benchmarked um, Leaf against HTML DSLs quite a while ago, and and there's it's it's a lot faster than rendering uh, templates. So you were talking about snapshot testing. What other libraries are you using for testing? I don't think we're using anything in particular. Um, just the normal built-in XC test. Obviously, Vapor extensions that come with 
with Vapor to um, make testing easier or possible, you know, like um, database access. We do use point-free codes as well, a technique to uh, do a dependency injection, which is a bit, I guess, uncommon in that it's a global where you uh, inject functions to, to render your dependencies. And that's worked fantastically well. It allows it re- allows re- really easily to stub out. Um, is this their composable architecture library? No, that's that's a standalone thing. I, I don't think it's even... I mean, it's not really a project because all you do is you declare a, a struct with functions in it and then you you know replace the functions at runtime and in dev you have a var struct which you can actually modify and in production it's a let struct which you can't modify and that sort of ensures that you don't mess with your dependencies at in you know in production code but in debug builds you have all you know all the options available to you to replace any any generator for a dependency like for instance date we use date as an injected dependency where we have a method void to date that can generate the current date and normally you just use state.init as a generator of that and in our test code we can supply a hard code date um closure that generates um, a given date yeah, I yeah no i it's, i totally understand what you're talking about i do this yeah. a lot quite a bit with my you yeah. know initializers where i'll take in a certain dependency, which gives you the option of overriding it. But when you actually run the code, it typically runs whatever my only implementation is. And it allows essentially for like plugging in mocks. Um, so that way you don't have to like do the real work of calling a database or a network or things like that. Yeah. The slight difference is with their approach, they have a global, you know, typically called current that you use as the entry point. So instead of using date, in it, you do current date. So it's not dependency injected on whichever module you're using. It's sort of a, a, a big uh, singleton that you're accessing to get your dependencies. Awesome. That sounds really interesting. We'll post a link to that tutorial uh, in our show notes. I wanted to mention something you'd, you've talked a lot about when it comes to testing, smoke testing. What does that exactly mean? And are you what are you doing as far as the site is concerned when it comes to that? So smoke testing is testing after deployment that your basic functionality is is all right that you haven't broken something. And in a previous project um that's I started doing that automatically after every deploy um and that was a project which involved also logins and you know basic user functionality um creating certain entities on the server that sort of thing navigating through views um, and what I did for that project is I wrote a little um, tool, which is called Rester, which allows you to, it's it's sort of a um, YAML-based DSL where you can specify web requests that you're making that can also, um, it's sort of like a program. They can, spec- they can reference previous requests, so you can easily instrument a login process. And what it effectively does after a deployment, it creates a user, it logs in that user, has that user do something, update some records and check that the updates are reflected. That sort of smoke tests that very basic functionality to ensure that you're doing the you're not you're not doing that one thing that you really want to avoid that that basic functionality is broken by a a deployment that you just made. And it also happens on the on the live service as much as possible, just to ensure because unit testing often covers all the bits and pieces, but what often happens is that deployment 
hasn't been tested end to end, right? I mean, the integration part is is sometimes where things go wrong, and that's often harder to test. So the smoke test is another another layer of ensuring that that everything is still working as intended. Maybe not as much in detail as a, as a unit test does, or, or, or surely not, but at a very high level, that basic right. functionality is the basic there. integration between the different services and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And and in case of the Swift package index, what we do is we we use that same tool to ping some uh, pages after deployment to ensure you know we're not returning 404s all of a sudden uh, where they they shouldn't be happening. One of the things I talked about with Tim uh, when it comes to like the different server packages was metrics, and it seems like you're doing something with metrics as well and using that Swift pa- metrics package. Could you kind of explain how you're using it and how it's been helpful to you? Yeah, so this is the the site ops part that I mentioned earlier um, as as ways to ensure the site's working well. So the testing is sort of pre-deployment, making sure those are right. And the site ops is after the fact, um, just ongoing monitoring. Um, And for that, we use the combination of Prometheus and Grafana. Prometheus is a a time series database for metrics, um, application level metrics, um, where you can monitor your system. Um, And Grafana is a web dashboard and, and system for, um, you know, showing graphs of what you have and alerting. And, and these are pretty standard. So I th- lots of packages or, or things come with Prometheus metrics built in and Vapor is, is one of those things that can be um, instrumented in such a way if you add the, I, I'm not sure what the, I think the package is called um, either Vapor Prometheus or, or uh, um, Prometheus metrics. Um, and what that does, if you add that package, you automatically get an endpoint in your Vapor app that Prometheus can scrape because Prometheus works by scraping certain um, parts of the system that you pointed to for metrics. So it, it pulls metrics rather than have it pushed to, the, to it. And by default, in if you add that to Vapor, that includes like uh, request level metrics, like request, request timings um, and such. But you can also add application-level metrics by exposing certain metrics that you're interested in. Like we, for instance, post how many bills there are just being pushed, um, how many build candidates there are, how many packages we've just um, analyzed or ingested, and that sort of thing. And then you can gather all this up and put it in a Grafana dashboard, you know, individually or together. And it, it shows a really nice picture of what's going on in your system and, and shows you you know, how things are progressing and if there are any issues. That's something I should definitely take a look at. I'm really interested in that and trying to get metrics up and going. So yeah, I'll definitely take a look at Swift Prometheus and Swift metrics. So besides serving up this site and the web pages and things like that, one part that is kind of hidden underneath, but does a lot of heavy lifting is the continuous integration setup. What are you doing for that as far as getting the site up and running and where are you hosting the site and things like that? Right. So there we we sort of do two things in parallel. Um, and that's partly historic and partly just because it's pra- pragmatic. We use GitHub CI for our just our everyday development process. Uh, so we run um, GitHub Action on the SPI server package whenever we make any changes and that runs through our normal um, unit tests, you know, like Swift test and gates, whether we can merge or not. Separate from that, we use GitLab for deployment. And the purpose of that is to auto-deploy various things to our environments. 
Uh, and the way that works is that any merge into the default branch gets auto-deployed to staging without any further interaction. And any tag that we set on on any revision gets auto-deployed to dev and uh, staging and production. Um, and that's what GitLab is for because it it made that really easy. I had quite a bit of experience from a previous project to set that up quickly. Um, so that's what we're running with right now. And I believe it's still more capable than GitHub Actions are at this time. The other thing that allows is have sort of a, a push button deployment of any revision to staging that we've added. So if, we, if we're working on a feature and we have it on a branch and we want to deploy that, that revision to staging, it's, it's literally a click on a single button in the GitLab UI and you can deploy that revision to staging um, to, to check it out. And equally, it's easy to roll back because it's just, you know, you just deploy a back version um, and that does, does everything, including database um, migrations and rollbacks. And, and that's, that's been super helpful um, during development. Nice. So the, you think like the reason you're still using GitLab is more because of the advanced stuff you set up um, when it comes to deployment? Definitely, yeah. I believe it's not quite on par yet on GitHub. I haven't checked in a while, but I mean, it's it's working for us. The only downside is that we need to mirror the um, repository over to GitLab. But, you know, that's that's not a huge issue, really. How do you do the mirroring, if you mind me asking? That's just a setup in, in GitLab. You can tell it to um, refresh from a source repository and then it just pulls in. The, the downside is it's not quite immediate, so there can be a bit of delay, um, which you can obviously manually um, um, override by just pushing to GitLab in parallel. Right, right. Other than that, it's, it's, it's just, uh, just another origin, really. Yeah, I've actually started uh, doing some work on GitLab. I've always been using GitLab for client projects. That's just what my clients use typically. Mm. But I really like GitLab, and I'm trying to use my old MacBook Pro as a CI machine too and getting that set up. But um, it's it seems really solid when it comes to like private repos as opposed to like GitHub. And I like the fact that you can host your own CI machine locally and things like that. Yeah, GitLab's really great, especially the visual aspects of managing your pipelines, which which is what GitLab, what GitHub Actions are called over in, in GitLab land. You, GitLab you land. Up, <laughs> <laughs> you can you can set up really nice uh, integration environments and uh, you know have like really visual stages of deployment and gate them behind manual actions, so you can you you can set up really nice dashboards for for deployments that I haven't haven't seen. Um, working in GitHub quite the same way. Yeah, yeah. I, I think GitHub is good for a lot of open source projects. Um, the CI stuff, it's pretty easy to to get that working, as far as, especially with Swift packages. But yeah, there's a lot more robust stuff on GitLab that you can do. And, you know, it's essentially free if you're doing, you're hosting your own CI anyways. So that's what yeah. I found the big benefit. So let's talk a bit about your recent article you had about running Docker on Apple Silicon, which has been kind of a headache for me uh, <laughs> being able to do that. Surprisingly, I've ended up actually uh, moving a lot of the, the Docker stuff over to, to GitLab because if I do anything on my M1, I can't really test it uh, Um <laughs> So I let GitLab do it for me, but I'll let you go ahead and talk about that article and what you found for doing a lot of that like VM type stuff on M1. Yeah, so that's um, 
that's the the main thing I sort of needed to figure out to to move to um, to the MacBook Air, the M1 MacBook Air, full time. Really, is is getting Docker set up, and initially my plan was actually to um, sort of attach a Raspberry Pi to it because I could couldn't think of a better way of of getting. Um, getting that up and running. And I should preface this, my only need for Docker on on the Mac at this time is is really just running Postgres. So um uh, same here. So so right, what I've ended go. up doing, uh I gave up and just installed Postgres with Homebrew. Yeah. Which, you know, it, it's fine because I don't if I need to destroy the database and start over, I can do that. Um, but yeah, it's there's a lot of convenience to Docker just being able to like spin up a machine, a brand new Docker instance anytime. Yeah. You just never have that worry that you've left something behind. Right. Um, and right. even exactly. if you have, it's it's very easy to get rid of everything and just reset and start from a clean slate. And and we have like makefile targets where we can just do make db reset that are portable, right? I mean, Dave can run it and I can run it and we know it works the same way on both of our machines and the only requirement is to have Docker. And, you know, thanks to doing this bit of extra setup, I was actually, you know, able to still use that process now on the M1. And yeah, and that's that's why Docker is, is really useful. Um, and, and it's even worth paying the bit of extra, you know, performance that you're maybe losing versus a native... Um, Postgres instance on on your machine itself. Hey folks, I wanted to talk to you again about app figures. You probably already know them about their analytics and their app store optimization. App figures really is about giving app makers the tools they need to get more downloads and revenue. Well, now app figures can help you track competitors for how many downloads they're getting and how much money they're making to their audience demographics and which SDKs they use. Their competitor intelligence really gives you great context. Say a competitor adds like a new feature or was mentioned in the news recently. With app figures, you can see if that brought in more downloads right away. Got a great idea for an app or a game? Well, with app figures, you can figure out how big that market is and how much money you could be making with it. And that's just scratching the surface. Whether you're growing your app or building a new one, app figures has the tools you need that will reduce the risk but also get you more downloads. You don't need a large budget or a data science degree to do this kind of thing. AppFigures has made it affordable and simple. On top of tools, AppFigures also provides a lot of great guides and tutorials to take you step-by-step through gaining more visibility with ASO and increasing your revenue by learning from your competitors. They just released a free guide on that, actually. So go ahead, head to the link in the show notes, and try AppFigures for free. If you like it, use our special code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. Thank you, AppFigures, for sponsoring our show. Yeah, so in your article, you talk about, and we talked about this previously, the virtualization framework that a lot of these projects, simple VM, the the VF tool, things like that, um, that I've actually started, like, dabbling in when I've had what little spare time I've had I'm about like setting up the different images, the v- VM Linux uh, image, the kernel image, all that stuff. And how has that worked out for you? It's worked great. I mean, that's, that's what I'm using day in and out to run the tests. Um, now, beyond those two articles, I've I've progressed a little because the, the limiting the downside of the setup as described there, it's, it's booting off a live CD. 
and then you install Docker. But the minute you shut down that VM, because it's all in RAM, uh, in this virtual machine's RAM, the minute you shut that down, you have to redo it, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's the way that's, that works as described there. But I've since moved to having a, a real you know VM that can be um, shut down and, and relaunched. So it's persisting its file system. I, I still need to write that up. I'm, I have it on my to-do list to write a follow-up to describe that process. It's not super involved, but it takes a couple of extra steps to get that up and running. Yeah, I've started really dabbling into that virtualization framework and creating my own like hard drive file and things like that. Um, so is it more like a virtual box than it is a Docker? Like the virtualization is a little bit more higher level. I mean, this this process as I'm running it right now is is simply running a virtual machine via the um, oh, I see. Framework. Yeah, and then you install Docker on the virtual machine. Okay, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes total sense then. Okay. Which is which is exactly how Docker for Mac works. I mean, you just don't see it, right? I mean, Docker for Mac is under the hoods using that same, I think it's using the exact same virtualization framework. Um, it used to use VirtualBox to do that, but they've, they've moved away from that a while back. But the reason Docker for Mac is a bit more difficult to use as on, as opposed to a Linux machine is is for that reason. Like for instance, on a Linux machine, you can if you want to inspect files that you have in a Docker volume, you can do Docker inspect and look at the path that you that you have shown, and then you on the Linux machine's file system, that's the path. Mm. On the Mac, that isn't the case because it's the path in the virtual machine that you're running. So it's not your Mac's path. So it's a bit harder on the Mac to get at those files because you're one step removed. You know, you're running that in a virtual machine itself, whereas on Linux, you know, it's on, running on the machine. So so I'm looking it up. Um, so they use HyperKit for their VM, it sounds like, instead of VirtualBox. But yeah, it, basically it's the same. It's like you said, it's running a, for VM and then from inside that VM, it's running Docker. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. I never knew that. Yeah, I joined the Docker, what do you call it? pre-release, whatever. And I, I believe it still needs Rosetta. I am avoiding installing Rosetta. I think it that's not the smartest move, but it I, I'm trying to like avoid it on my my new Mac. Um and it seems to be working pretty well. But yeah, one of the big big problems was Docker just getting that up and running. But I'll definitely take a look at this article and see if I can figure out how to do it myself with the uh the virtualization framework. I'd recommend it because I've tried the Docker preview as well, and it's a lot slower. It's like it's a factor of two slower than the the normal process, which is already um, slower than than running it this way. So, um, unless recent versions have changed a lot, um, you're leaving a lot of performance on the table if you use the preview. So, we've got a whole new year ahead of us. What are you looking forward to as far as improving the Swift package index? Yeah, we've got quite a few things planned. We just shipped um, the readmes. Um, I think this was in December. And we've got more uh, changes to the package page planned. In fact, just this morning, Dave has showed me a preview of um, what he's been tinkering with. That's really nice um, because just adding the readme um, sort of is the first step um, but uh, there's a bit of rejiggering that we can do on that page to make it nicer. Oh, it's really beautiful. I like it a lot. I'm just looking at one of my packages right now. Um, well done. Yeah, Dave, that's, I think that looks fantastic, Dave. And um, James has also helped us um, 
with that with that setup uh, rendering the markdown i think it looks it looks really great and i can say that because i had no hand in it <laughs> <laughs> now are you using sundell's library for converting that markdown over or are you using something else initially we did but because markdown pages on github plot right yeah yeah we tried that but um the github oh, okay. pages use a lot of the github markdown extensions so that we lost a few things. So instead we're using a, a C library that renders uh, the GitHub markdown flavor and gotcha. that gave us a lot better results. So right now we're using two different markdown renderers for that reason, but we, we might consolidate that at some point. But then we're looking to have a better search landing page. So right now when you search, you get the dropdown with the results. We want to make that a bit better uh, so that you can, you know, maybe even pass around links to searches. Also, you know, like DuckDuckGo could then be pointed to it and have little, you know, the, those little DuckDuckGo commands where you can, you, you know, the bangs that you can use with DuckDuckGo to search for packages and then land on, on search result pages. We're looking to add categories via various mechanisms, categories or keywords, also to improve search some other metadata file extensions and and by metadata file i mean that um, spi yaml file to give package authors more control over how their packages um display and what they display now how is that working alongside the you know internal swift package team because i know that we've had a lot of discussions about metadata and you know package.swift doesn't really contain a lot of metadata right now and i know there's discussions about improving that how How is that working side by side with the internal team? I think there's sort of agreement that some things just shouldn't be in the package swift file it's It's sort of a this is the build recipe whereas um there are other pieces of information that aren't really related to the build but more to the package if that makes sense and I think mm-hmm. we are sort of in the place where that becomes apparent because we are interested in those extra bits about the package um i mean the who the authors are or what the package homepage is, isn't really relevant to the build system, but that's relevant to what we do. So I think there's there's discussions to be had that this should sit in a separate file. A format to be discussed, I think you can spend years discussing what that should look like. We just right. picked something that sort of works for us now. And, you know, we're happy to evolve that, but we, we needed a solution for the issues we discussed earlier around the watchOS you know, targets and the Linux images. And that's what we, what we're using. And we might continue to expand on that or, or follow up with something different if, if there are compelling reasons to do so. But, but our understanding is that that is, this isn't conflicting with anything else that's happening there. Um, And we're just taking for now the pragmatic approach of, of needing a solution and it seems to be working. Yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. I am um, I'm doing some JavaScript stuff lately, um, and just like packages.json file is just there is so much like extra crap. I'll just say uh, in those fi- in those node files that just aren't really necessary. And I'm glad that like we're looking at keeping that metadata separated from the package.swift file. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, I mentioned it at the start. Arena integration is is really something that um, I especially would would like to get um, get in there um, soon. We, <laughs> which was the original reason you were brought onto the project? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
not not just for that reason, because but I I really think this is a, a great feature. We have a prototype of that, and I've been trying it, um, and I I think it's really great to just have one click and have a package in in a playground, and then play with it. I've actually extended Arena to allow package authors to embed a special file in their project that includes sample code so that you not only get a package a, a, a playground up with your package but have that playground pre-populated with example code wow so awesome. users can actually you know look at your package click a button get a playground and then execute your package and its example code in in a click and i think that's i think that's really compelling and um Dave and I have been discussing this. There's there's quite a few UX things that we need to still sort out, but I'm I'm just really excited about getting that. What is the current status of Arena? I know at WWDC they talked about package support in Playgrounds, which was imperfect at best. Um, what's kind of the position of Arena right now? Um, well, it, it improved a lot with Xcode 12 um, because previously you often had the problem that Arena would create a playground and open it in Xcode. But then you'd have to relaunch Xcode to be able to to actually run the playground properly. It it had build errors unless you did. Um, all of this seems to be fixed in Xcode 12. So the integration is actually now at a point where you where you could comfortably ship that feature and it would would actually work reliably with code completion working and and everything sort of working automatically. And the key thing was there to uh, I think the setting is auto build. The, the playground uh, and that sort of fixed all of these issues so i think this is looking great and um it, it's a great companion to xcode 12 and um, the package index yeah if you have not looked at arena you should definitely give it a shot it's a fantastic project by by sven um i'll provide a link in the show notes but it's a great way to like test out a swift package and figure out how it works um it's it's fantastic Thanks. So before we close out, I wanted to ask you, what are you most looking forward to in 2021? Ooh, I'm just going to stick to tech here because I think we all look forward to leaving a lot of what uh, 2020 has brought <laughs> behind. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> just on a tech side, I'm I'm super excited about Apple Silicon. I've been using my MacBook Air for, I think, two months now. And from the first day, I I haven't looked back at my 15-inch MacBook Pro. <laughs> it's it is like I don't think I've ever switched so fast to a new machine and and had that level of return. I, this the only thing that compares is switching to SSD yes. from spinning yes. disk. Yeah, like ten years ago, yep. and and this is I, the the word that keeps popping in my head is immediate, and it isn't just that tests run twice as fast on this thing. Everything is is faster, switching resolutions, um, windows popping up, opening apps. It's just immediate that that's the thing. And I'm really, really excited about what's next to come here because it seems like, or I think it's fairly obvious, this was the low-end switch, right? Next, right. We'll, we'll see the Pro switch, which is the, the Pro laptops and the iMacs. And then I suppose maybe next year, 22, we'll see the high end being switched. So I, I think this is like a three, three step switch. Um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to see like, for instance, a 14 inch MacBook Pro, a 16 inch MacBook Pro. I think that's, that's awfully exciting. What's, what's to come there. 
I couldn't agree with you more uh, when it comes to the tech stuff. Yeah. And that's a really great segue to our next episode. I'm going to have uh, Guion, Guy Rambo, and we're actually going to be talking about the M1 or M1 machines. And I'll give my full review on my MacBook Air. Spoiler alert, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> surprising. Um, so I'll uh, we'll talk about that in the next episode about my thoughts on Apple Silicon and and my new my new laptop and how that's gone. Um, but yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Anything else before we close out? Just um, WWC, I guess. I mean, uh, I think we're all excited about this as developers every year. I think next year or this year <laughs> and is is going to be another interesting one with. Um, especially the recent um, push from Apple releasing open source packages. Um, I think we'll probably see quite a few more Swift SDKs, maybe something like um, uh, SwiftUI core data related, you know, core data in in the same way that SwiftUI works, um, maybe more server-side Swift stuff. And then async await on the Swift side. I think uh, it's, it's going to be really exciting this summer. I think there's going to be a lot of talks about async away at this year. Yeah. Do you think it's going to be in person or do you think we're going to stick with doing remote? No, I, I can't see this being remote yet. No way. You don't think, you don't think that the conference will be remote? Uh, sorry. No, it's definitely going to be remote. Yeah, I can't yeah. see this okay. being in person. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's way too soon for that. And I think yeah. we're going to see yeah, a lot yeah. of conferences stick with that route. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's kind of a downer note to end the episode on, but <laughs> eventually we'll, well, we'll do in-person conferences, hopefully. Well, thank you so much, Sven, for coming on the show. Where can people find you? Um, I think the best place is on Twitter. Um, I'm underscore S-A underscore S. So just my initials with underscores sprinkled in or my webpage, findstructure.co. Yep. And we'll have links to that in the show notes, as well as the link to the Swift Package Index and some of the stuff we've talked about today. Uh, thank you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. People can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. My company is Bright Digit. Please take some time to post a positive review at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Thank you so much for joining us, and I look forward to talking about my new MacBook in our next episode. Goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs>